Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the show, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today by a very special guest and expert on intergenerational trauma, Dr. Mariel Bouquet. Dr. Bouquet received her doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University, and her work has been featured on major media outlets like The Today Show and Good Morning America. She's also the author of the new book, Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma, and host of a podcast by the same name. So Dr. Bouquet, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really well, feeling grounded today. How are you? I'm doing good. I mean, I always like start these with a little bit of nervous energy, I think. Like I just can't, I just can't help it even after doing it for like five years. So I always feel a little fired out of a cannon, but like you were saying, you have like a really wonderful soothing presence and just kind of how you are. So I think that helped kind of take some of the tone out of me a little bit. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. So I've just been really looking forward to having this conversation with you and your background is so interesting. And as maybe a a way into talking about your work, a piece of your personal story is that you were born in the Dominican Republic, then you moved to New Jersey when you were pretty young, I think you were like five years old. And from there, you went on to get your doctoral training at an Ivy League university, Columbia University's Medical Center. And I'm just wondering, what drew you to doing this work and like took your attention here? You know, I, I, when I had to really reflect on this, like a few years ago, I actually came upon the moment of self-introspection where I was like, you know what? I think that this work has always been with me in some way or another. I just never really had the language to say, like, I want to be a psychologist that helps people with X. And and the reason why I say I, I believe it's been with me is because there were moments in my life when I would actually see my family and also people in my extended community, even people who weren't related to me, but I would see them in a state of suffering, some sort of emotional suffering. And I always felt like I'm going to do something about this. I want to change this. Kind of like these like childhood savior fantasies of like trying mm. to the adults around me that were visibly in pain. And, you know, I eventually, Interestingly enough, I actually, um, I had to have major surgery when I was 23 and I was really nervous. I was like, oh my goodness, a surgery. Like I just, I was anxious beyond, you know, capacity. Someone actually suggested to me that I attend therapy. And in that first therapy session, my very first session, first therapist, the person said, you feel really psychologically minded. I I think you'd make a great therapist. You should probably consider it. And he proceeded to actually coaching me through the process of getting into grad school and eventually, you know, landing where I am. So that when I like reflect back, I think Mm. somehow this work found me because I didn't intentionally like grow up saying, I want to be a psychologist and then, (laughs) you know, proceeded on to that career. It wasn't it wasn't like that at all. So I I'm grateful because I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Mm. That is really great. And one of the things that's really present in my dad's story, and it's a story that he's told on the podcast in the past, is how he has this like vivid memory of being a pretty young person, like six-ish years old. Uh, he grew up uh, in a very rural community and just like standing outside of his house and looking at it and having just like a real awareness of the conflict and like the suffering that was inside of the house. Kind of like you were talking about, just like the, that awareness of the ways in which the adults in the room were suffering too. And there was this desire that you had to like do something to alleviate that. 
So that's like really present there for you also, which I just thought was like really interesting. And I, I wonder about that maybe. It's a question I'll ask some of the other psychologists that come on or something. I really think that there's a through line for us. I believe that some of us are, we happen to be like tender souls from the womb. And we were just mm. like people that absorbed our environments differently and that really kind of eventually may have found our way into this line of work. But at least in my generation, and I'm sure generations prior, like high school environments, no one ever told me, hey, psychology is a career, by the way. You can probably go that route. And I think that it would have sat really well with me given just how temperamentally I'm constructed and built. But even when I was a kid, my mom, she tells me stories about how people would say, wow, you have you have a little one, you have a toddler, I would have never known hmm. like, because I can't hear any crying. Any, I was just so quiet and so profoundly attuned to just my environment, just really taking it in. I've always been that way and I still am. Do you think that that tendency that you had, because we talk a lot on, we talk a lot on the podcast about things like parentification or the ways in which a kid kind of steps in to fulfill different kinds of adult roles for their parents by maybe being extra quiet or extra sensitive or performing different kinds of tasks. At the same time, there are aspects of like personality that we have that can just be very authentic to who we are. Like you're saying, you know, you just come out kind of a supporting, generous, giving person. And I'm wondering what you think about like the balance of those two things in a healthy way. Well, you know, there is there is a balance and sometimes there isn't, right? Sometimes it tilts in one direction or the other. I can say with certainty that for me, I, I, I believe that that quiet temperament was praised and mm. was lauded by the people in my community, but little did they know that I was a very anxious child. I was actually absorbing a lot of what was happening. Yeah, and it wasn't until I was an adult with now an understanding of what anxiety actually was that I said, oh my goodness, my entire childhood, I was on fire. I literally felt like I wanted to crawl out of my own skin and no one ever knew, including myself. If you don't mind me asking about it, what was the, the process that you went through to become more like aware of that part of you? Maybe to use some like IFS language here or, or that like aspect that needed a little bit of soothing. And what did you, what did you do about it? Like, what was your personal journey with it? Because I think that that's like a very, an experience a lot of people have gone through. Yeah, you know, it, the anxiety for me actually went into places where it, I don't know how I managed to do this, but I actually had panic attacks that went unnoticed. So I, you know, because panic attacks, the ways that we tend to think about them is like they're very visible. Someone can't breathe. You really, you know, you notice it. People come to their aid. And I was a very silent person in my panic attack. Like I was like literally like, not able to breathe, not able to, you know, really kind of like be in my own body, uh, dissociating and things of that nature, while also looking like I was okay. And so I believe that that also was a function of my childhood, like not putting extra loads on the people around me and just like really kind of swallowing my anxiety, if you may. I think that that triggering that happened when I had to get surgery and I had to be placed in such a deep level of vulnerability, you know, in the, in the hands of a surgeon. I think that that then made the anxiety and the panic so palpable that I was like, this just is not, it cannot be 
the natural way that I'm supposed to live on earth. Yeah. And so it was like that aha moment. Yeah. You, you, you couldn't not see it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It, because it, you know, it, I would fidget. I would sometimes kind of bite my cheeks when I was younger, when I was a kid. And so those things were the ways that I would soothe my body. But I, once I was an adult, I was like, I just know in my inner being that this is just not the natural way I am supposed to be every single day. There must mm. be a different way. Like I see people around me and I can't imagine that they would be feeling the way that I'm feeling inside. And so it was like that higher consciousness that came into play and my understanding of myself shifted mm -hmm. and, and, and transformed as a result. Now the journey itself has been, you know, I, I've been in therapy ever since. So I even did therapy when I could barely, like almost couldn't afford it. Like it is the one mm. thing that I don't skim on. I'm on time to every session. I'm present at every session. I'm very intentional about the work and I have been for the past 15 years. And a part of the reason why is because I, I saw one, that I needed the help and two, the ways in which it was transforming, not just how I was feeling, but my relationships the people in my life were also benefiting from the work that I was able to do and be more present and mindful, less irritable, right? Because that was also part of the constellation of symptoms that were surfacing when I was anxious. And so a lot of those things started, you know, becoming better. But initially the work really looked a lot like the talk therapy proper. It was just, you know, me telling the stories that lived in me that I never got a chance to tell, but that weighed me down emotionally. Eventually it got into being a little bit more structured, a lot of those like more CBT kind of practices. And then it transitioned. You know, when I started receiving my own training, I, I was trained in a fellowship. And uh, in that process, I was also oriented around meditation, Tai Chi, you know, like a lot of different practices that when I started layering that onto my own healing, I really saw the change. It, it, it just completely, the, the healing became exponential for me. So you're, you're describing a pattern here that you had that one could kind of connect the dots on and see how it might be somewhat environmental in nature. You had some anxiety, you had some concern with the, the people and the things around you. You mentioned not skimping on therapy, which makes me suspect that you're a saver in other areas of your life. You could see, you know, where these various things might come from. And I'm wondering how this connects to your your broader area of expertise on intergenerational trauma and how you think about these tendencies as being passed down in various kinds of ways. You know, the more that I actually dig into my family tree, the more that I'm able to see that suffering was the status quo every single living day of my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents' lives. And when I think about my own childhood and the fact that I, I don't recall ever feeling at ease in literally since the moments that I had consciousness of my own self, that helps me to understand, you know what? This was something that was there even before I could verbalize a word, right? Like it was present in me. So it makes a lot of sense to even apply the lens of the work that I do to my own life, which I have done and I do continuously. And that is the case for a lot of us. A lot of people, you know, when they come to me and we start telling stories of pre-verbal or 
you know, newly verbal experiences, they start saying, you know, um, I was told that I was hard to soothe. I was always, you know, somebody that, or I'm a crier, right? Like, you know, the tender souls of the world. And I always get very curious when people tell me that because that was language I used to use for myself. Mm. And I'm like, you know, tender, tender, that, that, if you're just tender by, by nature, right? Let's talk about who else was tender in your life? You know, who else had that like propensity to feel big emotions? And, and when we start peeling the layers, both in my own life and in the lives of my clients, there's always this through line of, oh yeah, you know, my parents, they suffered such and such. I continue to unearth a lot of new stories in my own family. Just this week, my sister and I had a conversation with my mother and we, we were holding space for her. You know, my mother is cheerful and calm in how she expresses the story. My sister is holding back tears because it's such a sad story of my mother's childhood. And I'm sitting there kind of self, like self-soothing, you know, by just like remaining calm and present for my mom and then also for my sister. And, and I'm looking at all of us and I'm like, you know, these stories, the story needed to be told. My mother needed to say, I didn't feel loved, right? Like she needed to say that and that needed to feel itself into, you know, our, our conversation. But, you know, when I, when I think about my mother coming from that kind of childhood, it, it makes a lot more sense to me why I, I didn't feel settled. And I felt like I needed a lot of love, like a lot of it. I'm trailing a little bit in the conversation now, but I, I just think that, you know, sometimes when we have these conversations with our elders, it allows us to also learn about ourselves. Well, you're, you're talking about like the different ways that we, we pass a pattern down, if that kind of makes sense. Like it takes a lot of different forms. Uh, a lot of the time in the kind of classic Western psychology literature, there's a focus on behavioral patterns, right? You watch your parents do things a certain kind of way, so you just sort of mimic how they do things. But you're talking about these other ways that this kind of transference happens, like through the through the story of a community, through the tales that we tell about ourselves or the people around us or the kind of people that we are. We could even get into like some epigenetic stuff around like gene expression and how the experiences that people back in our lineage, particularly grandmothers, go through can impact us in different kinds of ways. And so there are all these these tools that are not they're not fuzzy in nature. They're like pretty well understood in terms of how this kind of thing can happen, where it's not just about your parents did X to you or around you, and therefore you became Y. It's this sort of broader model that's taking place that I think you're speaking to really effectively here. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you know, and I think that it's important for us to have that understanding. I think it, we have done humanity a disservice in not being able to help orient us as a global whole around the fact that the ways in which our genes are, in essence, manufactured starts two generations prior to us even being born. And the fact that, you know, our grandmothers especially, like, are holding our parents at five months gestation with already the precursor cells that we would have already developed into. And the fact that there are three bodies existing in one at a particular point in time, taking in the same sensations and the same stressors, right? Like the fact that all of that is also a part of the initial 
structuring of our genes is, is a really important detail for us to know. We know a lot more about how that process actually leads to physical health complications or disease and the genetic ties there. We have not paid as much attention to the ways in which it happens from an emotional standpoint as well. And some, you know, I even look at some of the, the children that are in our society now and some of the language that happens cross-generationally where adults and especially grandparents are like, they're so sensitive. And if we really look mm. at what the adults have gone through and the fact that a lot of those emotional wounds have gone unaddressed because we didn't have structures in society, you know, to say like, oh, mental health is a thing. You can go to therapy and you can, you can like, you know, work on your wounds. We didn't have those systems in place in the ways that we have for physical health. And so if you look at it from the lens of intergenerational strain that's passed down generations, of course, the next generation is going to be more tender. Of course, they're going to be sensitive. You know, it makes a lot of sense from a biological standpoint, even. Could you give just a couple of examples here of some of the common forms or like common patterns that you see walk into the room when you're doing work with people? Yes, absolutely. When people are really coming to that point of understanding that, okay, yeah, this seems like there's a generational tie in the suffering in my family, a lot of them will, will have reflections like, oh, you know, a large part of my suffering comes from not receiving enough love from my caretakers. They never said, I love you. I know they loved me. They cared for me, right? Mm -hmm. But they never said, I love you. And I realized that they too suffered that same fate. Their parents never told them. They just, you know, a parent took care of you and made sure that you survived and, and that was it. And so we, we start seeing that there's layers, that there's these ways in which the experiences that they are having and that they've had in their childhoods were experiences that were recycled. The same goes for toxic relationship patterns or cycles of abuse. There may have been cycles of abuse that as an adult now, a person may be recycling that they saw growing up and they, they didn't know to disrupt those patterns because they were raised within them. And they saw that as the norm. The same mm. goes with family secrets. That tends to be a big one too. And the family secrets that get passed on, right? Because no one's willing to really bring them out of the closet and air the dirty laundry, as we call it, and, and really excavate the wounds that have kept those secrets in a place of shame. And so shame gets translated forward through generations mm. of families, like people learn to keep secrets. They don't keep secrets by default. That's not actually kids. They tell everything, you know, <laughs> they have to be socialized to keep secrets. And, and that happens primarily in a family. That's a great insight. I love that, <laughs> that you have to be socialized to keep secrets. That's a great line. Yeah. And, and socialized to, to also, you know, experience a lot of things that have those generational ties. There's a lot of socialization, which is why I always say, you know, intergenerational trauma is that type of trauma that is found at the intersection of our biology and our psychology. Uh, because we, we may, you know, have those like tender emotional remnants that are biologically based and, and inscribed in us. But we also have a lot of the relational, psychological, sociological patterns that are 
interspersed throughout our lives that also give way to these trauma patterns surfacing generation through generation. So sometimes I'll talk to people about half the time, maybe a little bit less than half the time, who say something like, wow, I really knew that this system was dysfunctional while I was in it. Or wow, I could really, even as a kid, I could just see that something was happening here that you know, was, was not quite it, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. But a lot of the time also, it's just the water that we swim in. And mm-hmm. we're the fish that doesn't realize that it's in water. And that, that insight into those, those patterns or that systems just isn't there. What do you think helps people like develop that first step of insight that often gets them in the room to work with somebody like you? Interestingly enough, a lot of the people that come to work with me are individuals who are now parents who are seeing their pain reflected in their children's eyes. And they think, oh my goodness, I know that pain and I don't want to pass it down. It's mostly cycle breakers who are parents who are like, or preemptive parents, people who are like, you know what? I'm thinking about the parenting journey. I'm dating someone and, you know, they seem like a good match. And now I'm thinking about, you know, in more future tense. Now I'm wondering what are the aspects of my childhood that felt like I would want to pass on? What's the legacy there? But also what are the parts of my childhood that I, I really want to leave behind that I do not wish to pass on? And, and that's where a lot of the, the, the meat of the motivation comes from for most people. Well, that's, I mean, really touching for starters. Um, kind of connected to it. Like when somebody has that insight, I've often just been like so surprised and pleasantly by the amount of insight that a person can have into their own psychology if you just like ask them about it, right? They'll tell you all about their patterns and their behavioral tendencies and their, you know, my mom did this and my dad was that and here we are today. And and yet for whatever reason, that insight doesn't always transition into the ability to actually do something about the issue, whatever it is. And I'm sure that you've seen that much more, much more closely than I have in terms of your work with people. What do you think Again, like it's kind of a turning point for people around taking that inside and turning it into some kind of actual action. Unfortunately, for many folks, it, it's when they tend to hit rock bottom. And I will say that there is a subset of individuals that have reached, this, my, especially when I used to still work at the hospital, have worked with me, having come through the doors of the hospital, sometimes just, you know, in, in dire condition. And, and then, you know, eventually when we start peeling back the layers, we realize there's a lot more there. So for those individuals, typically, you know, they see themselves really at the bottom and really don't know where else to go, right? Because they've peaked and, and they decide, I'm, you know, I must follow a different path. For other individuals, more often than not, they start to feel the tensions in their family unit very vividly mm, when they mm-hmm. start to recognize. <laughs> so they, you know, for example, this is tis the season, right? Like people go into family gatherings and they, they have now this like elevated consciousness, point of recognition and an understanding of how incredibly uncomfortable it is to sit across the table from individuals that feel not great to their soul, right? And so eventually like people start feeling like, you know what, I just, 
this just cannot go on. So there is a, a, a through line really kind of like with a lot of folks where they just see that things must change. Like there is a, a kind of like a breaking point, if you may, for lack of a better term, that people reach. Sometimes it's a breaking point in the fracturing of really kind of like their their energy and and them feeling like, you know, they just cannot continue in that path that they've been walking because it, they just cannot be any more unwell. And sometimes it's uh, the environments that they're now appraising and realizing they cannot function within those environments anymore and they need to change them, most, most notably family environments. Uh, I thought that that was a wonderfully poignant but also diplomatic line you had a second ago there, uh, you know, across from people who they feel just aren't great for their soul is like a really, really beautiful way to thread that particular needle. But yeah, I mean, our family systems, there's this wonderful line, I think it's from Lori Gottlieb, I heard said it, our families are the ones who have known us the longest, and therefore, these are the systems that are the most resistant to change. You have the most water that's under the bridge with these people. And, you know, I can I can think of like my sister. I've known my sister her whole life. She's a couple years younger than I am. I've got a lot of water under the bridge with her. And I still remember her when she was 12 and 13. And I've had to kind of update my understanding of her as time has gone on. But there's still a part of my memory that's tied to that younger piece. So for people who are doing this work inside of that like family context, it can often be really hard to to get a lot of like change energy going just because the system has become so entrenched. And I'm I'm wondering what you've seen about that. Yeah, you know, it, it is incredibly hard. You're absolutely right. I I don't understate that at all with this work, which is why the work I always call courageous, because we really have to step into courage on a daily basis. And what I mean by courage is we have to kind of step also into vulnerability, which I see as courage. We have to help ourselves to really step into the places that still have deep wounding and that keep us in a a specific kind of dynamic with the folks in our lives and really almost kind of face them, right? I myself, like I grew up with a sister who she and I actually didn't get along until she reached the age of 30 and I I was 27. And, you know, her parentification and having to take care of me made it so that she felt like I was a burden to her and I was, you know, just loved my big sister, but always felt rejected by her. So there was a bit of a tension there. Now she's like my best friend, but but we had to do some hard work. We had to have honest conversations about the pain that was caused, even as children, right? Because of the ways that our family was structured and the things that needed to take place that placed burdens on us as children, we needed to have those dialogues and they felt gunky, muddy, ugly, messy. They had little structure, they were longstanding. They weren't just one conversation tied in a bow. And when we can actually express that this is the way that it looks, I think that it can help free us a bit more from the fear that we hold around even having them. More often than not, people think, okay, you know, this conversation is going to look this way. And they come to realize that it doesn't. And there's a sense of disappointment there. And then other emotions that also come alongside that. And I think that that is a hindrance for us. We need to 
have a clear understanding of how ugly these conversations can look. They are not pretty. They're not, it's not that they might be violent, not that, but that they just reflect pain. At the other side of that, there is opportunity for connection. Sometimes there isn't, and we have to acknowledge that too. And, and even in the book, you know, I mentioned we have to grieve the parts of our family that are immobile, are unchangeable, are frozen, the individuals or the characteristics. And we have to, in essence, like almost kind of like attend a funeral of the people that we wish they could be. Mm. And, and we have to step into an understanding of who our true family is with all of their flaws, all of their capacities to hurt us, all of their, you know, shortcomings and engage almost kind of like in a new relationship with the individuals that are truly in front of us. And none of that feels great at the beginning. Grief doesn't feel great. And even grief that is in our minds that we have to construct, right? Because we forget that there is a loss. You're losing the individual that you held on to and you have to kind of like reconstruct a new relationship. So all of that is very complex work and it is hard work. Um, so I always like to, you know, always preface intergenerational work with the understanding that this is not easy and it is very likely to not look like a picturesque kind of conversation, uh, quite the opposite. Well, that was really like, Beautifully said. Um, and it was also reflective of, of certain aspects of my own experience. Like I mentioned, I have a younger sister and we did not get along super well growing up. We were in conflict most of the time. There was definitely a layer that you were talking about in terms of me feeling like a little affronted by the existence of this other being that has come along to you know, require all of these things that a young child requires. And we had a pretty, a, a very beautiful process, but like a just like you're describing, a fairly rocky process in my early 20s, where we went through some of that repair work. And one of the central moments of it, and I think that she would be okay with me telling this story, I'll double check with her before we air this episode, but um, where she, she just kind of had a moment with me where she was just like, why don't you love me? You know, essentially, she was like, why? Like, what's going on? Like, what's going on here, dude? Why don't, why don't you love me? And that totally opened the door to a completely different relationship with this person. But it required a moment of like real vulnerability and real like putting it on the table from her. And I think we would have gotten somewhere functional and good without it. But I think that it was that vulnerability and that like access to the interior that she had in that moment that allowed us to get to actually a really wonderful relationship that's like been mm -hmm. developed over time. Mm -hmm. But that's like a high bar of practice, man. Like you got to be willing to go there in that way. And I, you know, she was whatever, whatever was happening in that moment for her, it really came through. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering uh, what are some of the, I don't know if it's like the internal supports or maybe it's just like a moment of grace or whatever it is that you think like helps people get through these hard conversations with each other. Mm, wow. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And we have to honestly believe and be socialized to believe and to understand the truth, which is that we can survive our own vulnerability. Mm. Most of us believe that if we open up that tenderness and expose it to folks, that that's actually going to leave us in a place where um, we're going to dip into the black hole of, you know, darkness and like the point of no return, we just won't be able to really resurface from vulnerability. 
that actually vulnerability has an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity to really liberate ourselves from the deepest parts of our wounds. And very often we're just not socialized to believe, first of all, that we can survive it. And then secondly, we are actually not socialized on how to survive it. How do you get into a conversation that is vulnerable? And then what do you do after? How does your body take in that experience? A lot of people are sitting, like stewing in anxiety while they're having conversations and not realizing that they have actual tools within them to help them through the process and even help them with the emotional remnants that are left behind when the conversation is finally complete. And so the fact that we don't have awareness of the fact that we can survive and the fact that we don't have the tools that we can put in place to actually survive it with more grace, I think those, those two missing pieces are probably the bigger parts of why. Yeah, yeah. There's like a there's a fear of annihilation piece to to the whole thing a little bit. I like I'm just speaking personally. Like there's something about going into it, whether it's a difficult conversation with somebody or maybe more to the point of of the bigger topic we're exploring here around intergenerational trauma. Just like that exploration of the interior, like going into some of the rooms in your own house where you're like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to walk into that room today because it's spooky in there. Some friends of mine who have talked about uh, not wanting to go to therapy because they feel like they're stable right now and they're concerned about what will pop up for them. That's a that's a big one that you hear. And I really appreciate how you're focusing on tools and resources that can support us through that process as opposed to giving like a script to follow. Because a lot of the time when people talk about this stuff, they'll ask for, okay, well, like, how do I do that? How do I have that conversation with that person? And for starters, I'm not a clinician, but even if I were, there are 10 million different situations that a person could be in. Like, it's very hard to counsel somebody from afar about their specific situation, but you can give them resources that might be able to help them through that experience or have that moment of insight where they see an opening, like the way that my sister did in that moment where she was like, there's an opening here and I don't know why I see it, but I see it. And I'm just going to fly through the opening and you know, we'll see what happens on the other side of it. And so I would love to get kind of an, ex- I don't know if an example is quite the right way to put it, but like uh, a thought from you on like how this work actually works with people when you're doing it. Like what are some of the resources that you're giving them? What are some of the tools that tend to help? Is there a process that this normally takes for people? Like what does this really look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, love the question. You know, the work itself is variable in length according to the person, the layers, right? And also if people want to do a long-term process of like yeah. integrating the lessons into their lives. So that that's a little bit more fluid. However, the actual structure of the work tends to feel fairly similar across mm. the board. Great. And I actually made sure that I was writing the book actually from the perspective of being someone who needed a book like this and what I would have wanted to digest. And so intentionally, I like take people through what feels like a similar process to what I do in my actual work with clients. And therapy is very open-ended, right? But 
some of the best models that I have seen for trauma-based work have been structured around like phasic models, phase one, phase two, phase three. Mm -hmm. So although I didn't explicitly say that within the actual work that I do, I do keep that in mind that we are working in phases. The very first phase, believe it or not, is not digging into the layers of our family tree. It's actually grounding ourselves. It's settling the nervous system. It's getting to a place where we actually do deep breathing by default. It's getting to a place where we have lifestyle changes that actually integrate holistic practices within our lives in a very nuanced way and almost in a way that it doesn't need to feel like an added task, but it is simply a way of living. So I start there. I start with really a full system approach with every single person and just like reorienting them around a different way of being so that they can befriend their bodies and they can actually have a body and a nervous system that isn't working against them and a body and a nervous system that is feeling like it's being nourished and cared for and being more regulated and more at ease so that when we start getting into phase two, which is the digging work, which is actually building out the intergenerational trauma tree, actually engaging in an intergenerational adverse childhood experiences assessment to get a sense of all of the different layers of wounding. And like when we start excavating those wounds, it can feel really heavy. So if we don't actually have a system in place ahead of time that actually helps a person to ground and sustainably so, then we're, we're actually going to be reopening wounds that can feel re-traumatizing. So phase one will always be that grounding element. Phase two would, would be, of course, the excavation and like really getting into the details of what happened here through the generations. Phase three is integration. So it's really taking in a lot of the ways in which all of those wounds have then transpired into actual thoughts, behaviors, relationship dynamics, ways to approach life, work, children, like all of the different ways in which now those wounds are translating into the ways in which you've operated in life mm. and actually getting an understanding of how to then start cutting them at the root. We're cutting the behaviors. We're doing things differently. We're finding alternatives to how you can be and manage life that doesn't reflect the cycle keeping process that you were engaging in before, even if it was subconscious, but that act actually reflects how you're building a legacy that's different and moving forward in the direction of building health and abundance in your life. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. 
Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. I would, if you're up for it, I would love to essentially just like walk through each of these three phases a little bit. Mm-hmm. And because I'm sure people are listening and they're like, sounds great. How can I start doing this? So I would love to start at the beginning. Like, what are some of the the resourcing tools? Sometimes people use that kind of language. I don't know if you prefer, you know, resourcing yeah. or grounding or soothing. Or everybody's got their own word. What are some of the ones that you tend to tend to come back to, or or maybe that have been particularly helpful for you? Yeah, f- both on a personal note and and also that I integrate into my practice has been the practice of sound bath meditations. Mm-hmm. And for anyone not familiar with what that is, they are Tibetan derived practices that actually infuse singing bowls that emit specific frequencies that actually make it so that both on a mind and body level, we actually experience greater calm and ease. So it made sense, you know, for that to be a natural segue into, you know, some of that grounding kind of resourcing work uh, in my practice. I want to make it so that people are able to do the work on a continuous basis because I, I get a lot of, I'm a busy mom, you know, I'm a CFO. And so when we can make these practices accessible, there people are more likely to integrate them into their lifestyle. So when I talk about like doing, in essence, like kind of like homework, I talk about doing breath work, mm. doing humming, and doing rocking. And breath work, it's been popularized enough that I think a lot of us understand the 
ways in which, you know, the breath is, is an actual powerful tool that we all have that can actually regenerate our bodies in, in a multitude of ways, but also help us to create new synaptic connections inside of our brains and nervous system that are structured towards health and structured towards ease and calm. So there's that, right? And then there is humming, which if for all of us, we have like a part of our nervous system that actually helps us to relax and release. There's a part Mm -hmm. of our nervous system Mm -hmm. that helps us to understand, oh, there's a threat coming. Once the threat passes, the other part comes in and says, we can relax, go back to balance, we're okay. And so there are ways that we can actually stimulate that cranial nerve, which is called the ventral vagal nerve. And the, the stimulation can be done through humming, more specifically through humming in low tones. But sometimes even like with kids, I tend to just say like, what's your favorite song? And, and we hum the song or I That's you know, great. give them. So, so it's a way to really kind of integrate the practice into someone's day, if somebody's driving to work and they listen to five songs on the way to work, they can hum the songs instead of singing them. And they're already baking it into their day. And the third is, is rocking, which also has a ventral vagal stimulation process that it initiates. And I like to also, you know, like I rock and I sway from side to side naturally by default now. But, you know, for anybody who thinks that that might be something maybe like a little weird, What I like to also reference to is, hey, think back to when you were a kid, let's say a baby and just a toddler, somebody was rocking you to sleep. Why did that work? It worked because it helped to soothe you and it helped your nervous system to feel at ease and relax and it stimulated your ventral vagal nerve. There's an actual function there and it actually helps and it works even in our adult lives. So if you can emulate that, then you're already giving yourself that soothing experience that you're going to need. So I do some practices in the therapeutic practice itself with clients, but I also then help them to integrate practices into their day-to-day lives so that they can do it more often. And that, that forms the grounding resourcing kind of phase that, that we tend to get into. Yeah, so we actually had Steve Porges on the podcast not too long ago, and uh, talked with him about some like similar related things. He, I think that he actually mentioned humming at one point uh-huh. as like a good way to get that kind of inner ear stimulation, kind of enter that enter that soothing state in the body. I really appreciate how you're focusing here on finding a way in for a person that feels accessible to them. That can be done in the course of their day. That is maybe connected to things that were supportive of them when they were a younger person. Because we're all carrying around that, you know, that younger part, whether we mean that in a kind of technical IFSE way, or if we mean it just in a more practical, like we have those memories. And, you know, I certainly still think of myself from time to time and kind of like forget that I'm in my mid-30s and still very much feel like I'm a young person in like a big spooky world. And just having some authenticity about that, I think can be really helpful for people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love the framing of that. And I I share that with you being in my late 30s and, you know. Yeah feeling like sometimes you kind of go into your younger self and not really realizing that that person has, you know, kind of made up like a, they're present now, you know, uh, yeah. on your behalf. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I, I think that it's really critical for us to embrace these methods that have been interspersed into society in these ways that haven't been necessarily called out. I had a parent that rocked me to sleep but I never really understood that that could actually be a way in which I can self-soothe. 
I can, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm going from one meeting to the next and I have to walk from, you know, one part of the office building into, into another, there's an opportunity to hum. There's an opportunity to do deep breathing. There's a chance for integration of, you know, a practice that wouldn't have made it into my day to actually be a part of my day. And my hope is that eventually we can get into being at the type of society that can actually teach this to children so that children wouldn't have to be the adults in search of their ease and their calm and their peace and their relaxation in the ways that we so desperately are doing so right now. I hope we're close to that. Maybe one day, but I certainly hope we're close to that. And I think that um, I just I just remember my dad talking about working with kids. A lot of his work was with children and families and how he used play as a tool. He did a lot of play therapy, learning how to play different games, how to regulate different emotions that come up in the course of of natural play, you know, frustration, irritation, the balance of wanting to win, knowing you can't sometimes, you know, whatever it is. Like all of those like very, very useful regulatory tools. And sometimes I think that we just like don't give kids enough credit. We tend to view them as these like, God no, unformed larva or something like that sometimes in this sort of like dismissive way where it's like, oh yeah, you're just yelling in the grocery store because you're having a temper tantrum or something. But it's like, things happen Do you know, we have stimulus and response. Like something is happening, that child is having an experience that's profoundly authentic to them in that moment and is frankly arising more often than not very understandably, particularly (laughs) if you think about our our broader like biological context prior to the last 10,000 years or so, the kinds of environments we were in, the kinds of experiences we were having Mm -hmm. and how so much of life is like so foreign to that these days. Yeah, yeah. We're very disconnected and removed and, you know, we kind of have to find our way back to health. And so- which is why, you know, because we are nowhere near, in my opinion, nowhere near the place where we need to be as a society to actually say we don't need to search for health. But I do appreciate the fact that we are open to the conversation and that conversations are being had on a global scale as well. So you outlined your your phasic model earlier. We've kind of gone through phase one here. And then phase two, you were talking about essentially opening the door to that that deeper material, mm-hmm. whether it be about a person's individual experiences or maybe it's more tied to broader experiences that have happened in their family system. And you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned creating like a, a family tree of traumatic experiences of different kinds or just like what's happened to them. My partner, Elizabeth, is a somatic therapist, and I she did a, an exercise like this while she was in graduate school. I forget was I keep on, maybe you know the words for it, I'm totally forgetting what it's called, but it's basically like a trauma tree where you have all like the connections of different people, and there's different notations for different kinds of uh, challenges that they might have experiences or issues that they might have had. Then you also mentioned uh, early childhood experiences and adverse childhood experiences, would you mind kind of walking through what that looks like or what some of the big tools are there? I hope I'm not mistaken, but I think she may have reference to a genogram, which yes. is, you know, kind yes. of, yes, 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 okay. yes, yes, that's the one. You nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. I was searching yes. and it just wasn't there. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, both counselors and genetic counselors are actually taught uh, to construct genograms. And I was actually, one of my supervisors within my own training was actually formally trained as a genetic counselor, and then as a clinical psychologist after she was a few years into her career in genetic counseling. And so, it, you know, I, w- I was able to like really get a, an in-depth understanding of 
that element of the work and that excavation process. And so it was just a very lucky experience that I happened to have, which then I thought this also needs to be a part of the work, of course, because it, it presents so much rich data that we can utilize. So what I did is that, you know, I, I couldn't necessarily find an intergenerational trauma tree that actually reflected what I wanted us to understand. And what I desired for us to understand in the context of the work is that there are people in our families that hold specific experiences. The experiences themselves was a part that, you know, was scattered into some trees here and there. Beyond those experiences, those individuals had coping mechanisms, sometimes called you know, especially if they're not necessarily adaptive, but maladaptive, they have specific ways in which those coping mechanisms translated into trauma responses. And so those trauma responses were also pieces that I desired to have inside of the intergenerational trauma tree because it is those circumstances that go on invisibilized in our families become the norm. And then we don't actually like excavate them enough to understand, oh, I've adopted that myself. So the mm -hmm. other parts of the tree would have been the trunk of the tree. And the trunk in essence signifies like who we are and what we've adopted. You know, have we adopted like perhaps a people-pleasing capacities? But in addition to that, We've also adopted this chronic sense that our stomach is turning. And mm. maybe we've gotten a diagnosis that resembles irritable bowel syndrome. But in reality, a lot of what's happening is a lot of internal constriction of our gastrointestinal tract because we are in a constant state of emotional alarm, right? And so like it's really excavating a lot of those layers so that we can get a better understanding of ourselves from this lens. Beyond that, we have a root system. And that root system is reflected of everything that it is in essence like coming into the family tree. Like there are certain sayings that we have and internalized sayings. Like sometimes people internalize like the idea that they're broken. And that tends to be like a recycled, you know, narrative. So we need to include that into the root system. And then there's also, you know, there's a, a whole entire soil system also beneath those roots that we need to understand as well. And that soil system is everything that is kind of a part of the microcosm that the family is a part of. Like it's all of society, the institutions that we're a part of. cultural context, yeah. Cultural layer. context. Everything that's being fed into our homes subconsciously through the socialization process that is also feeding trauma into our lives and into our homes. All of that needs to be a part of we, what we have as an understanding if we want to do a lot of the liberation work from those roots, from that soil that is barren soil. It's, you know, it's just, it's, it isn't feeding life into our family. And so I, I found that being able to then build a tree that had all of these different components added to it, added greater nuance to the understanding that people had about not only what transpired and everything that is in essence feeding the, the ways that they're living their lives, but it also allowed them an opportunity to think about what roots need to be cut. Do we need to change the soil? Do some of the rotten leaves need to fall? And so it's from, you know, that point that we also, you know, kind of go into an excavation process of the 
person's adverse childhood experiences, which what we know about adverse childhood experiences felt a little bit limiting to me and my clients. And so what I did mm. was that I, I started adding pieces that, that felt more pertinent to the work that I was doing. Average childhood experiences focuses only on our childhood. But what we know through, through a lot of studies is that parental experiences of childhood adversity are actually a really big risk factor in parents actually producing the same wounds in their own children. And so if we have that through line of an understanding that childhood maltreatment especially can lead to childhood maltreatment, it's going to be really important for us to understand what happened to them, what made it so that they developed into being the kind of parent that then parented you this way. And, and, and then beyond that, you know, average childhood experiences is also a place where I believe that we need to look at the social microcosm and the ways in which we are also beings of this world. And the world is a world that can also feel traumatizing. We all suffered a pandemic. What about those experiences that may have left our families in economic depravity or a, a community wounded? And in what ways have those also factored into the wounds that have translated into our homes? And so I, I, I get very comprehensive about these excavations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, we, when we're able to really tie all the pieces that we have, right, we don't need to have the entire story, but whatever it is that we do have, then we can move into that integration process with more data really at our disposal. So some of those tools, creating a genogram, going through an adverse childhood experience checklist, something like that, they can kind of help somebody get enough space from whatever it is that they're talking about that it's not that it's impersonal. The piece of paper that you're filling out or the practice that you're doing becomes almost a kind of buffer between you and what happened. But it, there's just a little bit of room there. But often as part of this process, particularly when you're really getting into how you felt about it or what was really there for you in some kind of very personal way, it can become a very emotional process. You're really opening the door to a lot of material, um, including really reevaluating how you think about yourself, how you think about your family, how you think about the experiences that you went through when you were a young person. Like, There's some real reorganizing that's happening here, and that can be extremely disruptive for people. And I'm wondering... What you've just seen about that moment sometimes where like the lid pops and things come out in a new and different way and what, what helps people through that and also helps them kind of reorganize after it? Well, this is where being a trained therapist can be incredibly helpful for me in those moments, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> now, I will preface this by saying the original ACEs, for example, is a form that most of us clinicians are trained to give to a person while they're still in the lobby for them to fill out mm -hmm. and then give to us. That's not how I work. It's, it, <laughs> I couldn't possibly have someone excavating their wounds in a yeah. lobby setting and, and suppressing their emotions about it. So that's not, you know, and the, the questions in the one that I've structured, there's about 10 in the original Mine has, mm -hmm. I think, 35. We yeah. go through sessions upon sessions upon sessions of actually going through these questions, sessions upon sessions of building the tree. It doesn't just happen in you know one swoop, one session. It's a process where I'm diving into this with the person, leaf by leaf, root by root, and we're really going through the process of how is this sitting with you? How is it making you feel? Where do you feel it in your body? 
Can we do some breathing? You know, it's very paced in, in a way that enhances healing and doesn't further injure. Well, I think that's a very wise way to approach it. That is not so well integrated into the kind of classic Western model that we have about these things, where a lot of it really is about not just like the efficiency of it, although I think that some of it is about efficiency. Uh, a lot of it's about what what leads to easy study design and like clean study design. What can we what can we do in an eight week clinical model? As you're much more familiar with than I am, but uh, that kind of stuff, and it can really disconnect people from what actually supports somebody through that process in the way that you're describing. Yeah, there's an economic undercurrent to that because oh, sure. in order to have the field funded by health institutions and just kind of institutions that even drive health institutions, we have to prove that things work. And, and so people, you know, gravitate towards those structured, short models that, that they can actually test so that we can funnel, you know, some sort of funding into our field. And it leaves so much behind. In addition to that, you know, we have models beyond the Western medical model that have shown us for a millennia that they work and we've discarded them. Many of us are coming back to them. You'll hear a lot of clinicians now, you know, either doing yoga themselves or either recommending it, right? You know, and you wouldn't hear of yoga inside of a therapeutic space. It wouldn't be, there wouldn't be an integration. There would just be worlds apart. But we now understand, yeah, it, we may not be able to, now we, of course, now we have plenty of studies that actually do, do some, you know, testing with yoga and meditation and mindfulness and that's all beautiful. But people have known that yogic practices have had a positive impact upon singular humans, families, and communities for a multitude of generations before Western medicine and Western science said, hey, let's test this. I mean, this is such an interesting part of the whole conversation, right? Like, look at meditation as an example. So meditation has been around for thousands of years in different forms. And it's really, you know, only about the last 50 years since, uh, you know, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, like the early, early, early work that was done on it in the 70s and 80s. And then it's really just like the last 20, 30 years that it's become like a validated approach. And even uh, when my dad, my dad wrote a book called Buddha's Brain, where he was integrating a lot of more like Eastern tradition into a psychological model. At the time that he wrote that book, which was just like 20 years ago or something like that, meditation was still viewed as this pretty like wooey, pseudo-spiritual, not tremendously credible, not very mainstream kind of practice. And that's just 20 years ago. These days, meditation is probably the single most recommended mental health practice that we have, like period, due to its broad accessibility. Anyone, or not anyone, but almost anyone can do it and get some value out of it. So it's just really, like the arc of history is really long here. And we mm -hmm. could all probably do with like a little bit more intellectual humility about all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I would love to ask you here at the end, if you don't mind, about that third phase where you were talking about kind of really integrating this stuff into how we go out in the world and how we change practically, which I think is always just like such a beautiful part of the process. And it's often also where, where people have a lot of uncertainty. They're like, okay, I've done this digging. I've changed how I think about this stuff. Now what? You know, this is where the, the work, it's nuanced through and through, right? But it, it develops even greater nuance in this third phase. 
And I think that, you know, one of the examples that feels perhaps more tangible and prominent to like express here, like I'm going to use mother and child. And Mm -hmm. maybe we have a child that is asking their mother for a lollipop, right? And the mother has had a really tough day at work, truly, truly hard. And let's say that this mother, like, you know, her traditional like way of like talking about herself would be like, I come from a family of yellers. We just yell. So I yell at my child. I, I got yelled at. And then, you know, the normalization of these kinds of behaviors and practices. However, in the learning journey of herself, in the grounding and excavation work that we've done, she's been able to identify that in, in reality, a lot of her family members have been stuck in fight mode, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, fight mode in, in the nervous system response. And that she herself adopted that very same mechanism of sorting through stressful circumstances and any mild stressor, and especially if she's had a really big stressor, like maybe a poor evaluation at work, which she is now sorting through, and now she has a, a trigger point, her child asking for a lollipop. She, she now has, of course, the defaulted nervous system state that she goes to, which is to fight, which is to yell at her child and say, like, anything that can be harmful, that can be, you know, that can stay with this child for a long time, sometimes cursing, you know, the works. However, through the work that we've done in the grounding process, we've actually been able to gain back time. And what I mean by that is that we've offered her at least a two to three second buffer between Mm. stimulus and response. So we've offered her an opportunity to actually have those two seconds of understanding like how her body is taking in this request, what the actual factors are in her day that could have led to to her feeling more tender and sensitive, Mm. and that that sensitivity would turn into irritability and then displacement. So those two to three seconds are gold because they offer her an opportunity to actually be reactive from the place of how she wants to leave a legacy for that child, which is a legacy of feeling like they're seen, heard, loved. And so in that moment, she knows that what she was able to see growing up as far as the trauma response was the yelling. We've done the excavation work. That's what she's learned. She understands that that's being replicated in her present day life. However, the integration process is buying us those two to three seconds, and now she's able to exercise a different behavior based on her learnings. So now in integrating, she would say, would you be able to give me a few seconds to just think about it? And it Mm -hmm. may not be the softest tone. It may not be tender. She may not hug her child. She may not have the capacity to do any of these things right now, But she did prohibit herself from actually moving forward in the direction of saying something injurious. And she allowed herself a moment of respite and self-reflection and self-understanding and gave herself a healthy separation between herself and her child's request so that she could settle. So that's kind of how the integration process works. And, you know, people will, of course, you know, have moments where they backtrack. We will process the backtracking. 
let's talk about what happened. Take me through the moment, right? Like that's where a lot of some of even the talk therapy comes into play. And, and we reintegrate what are some options that we have for those moments? Okay, try those options next time, right? And so integration happens. That's a really fantastic articulation of what this actually looks like in practice. And, and what I really, really like about it is that it's small. The stuff that matters is small. It, it's like it's one second here, it's one moment there. It's a little practical interaction that you didn't have exactly the way that you would have had it before. And just speaking personally, and also maybe seeing this a little bit in other people, like we can really look for the white light moment in our lives, right? Where like mm-hmm. the, the seas part, clouds lighten, everything's just radically different all of a sudden. But it normally doesn't really work that way. It's the compounding of all of these little moments where we made like a slightly different choice. And when you look back, all of a sudden you're in a radically different place. Yes. And so I love that that's kind of what you're centering here. And also just like a word that I don't think we've we've even really used during the conversation yet, but there's a huge values piece to all of this. Like you were saying there, you know, what do you want to leave for that other person? Mm-hmm. You know, what are your values that the person has and that the person has uncovered as part of this process? They've really sat in this deep value of not wanting it to be the same for their descendants as it has been for them. Like that's mm-hmm. a powerful organizing feeling, right? Like that's very energizing in that way. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder about that connection to values piece of the whole thing as like a, a, a guiding motor that can help get people through this process. It's a really big piece. You know, it, on the other side of shame, which is what tends to be reproduced and recycled when we keep the cycles going that have been a part of our families for generations, we typically, especially when we are cognizant of the fact that those cycles can cause harm and injury or perpetuate, you know, further behaviors that are unhealthy, we experience shame. Many of us think, you know, and it's part of that root system, what comes in is like, I'm broken, you know, I never change like all those things. However, on the other side of that, when we actually buy back those two to three seconds, what happens when at the end of the day, it's time for bed, we turn off the light, and now we're in a point of reflection of what happened in our day? Pride. So on the other side of shame is pride. And it's pride in the fact that we acted from a place that aligns with the values that we hope to not only embody for ourselves, but instill in our children. And so all of that starts becoming what then creates not only a further motivation to continue those practices, but if we think about, okay, behaviorism just a little, right? Like, you know, positive reinforcement. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, what we know about positive reinforcement is that it increases behavior, desired behavior. So we're in essence, like positively reinforcing ourselves with the emotion of pride and then increasing, you know, our capacity or our, even our subconscious motivation to, to actually do the very thing again. Well, I feel like this is one of those things where we could just kind of keep on talking about it. And it has just been so fantastic to talk to you today. So Dr. Bouquet, thanks so much for joining me for this. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. I love today's conversation with Dr. Mariel Bouquet who's the author of Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. She had just a wonderful way of talking about these topics and something that I said to her after the uh, after we stopped recording, but we were still kind of interacting a little bit at the end, was that she really brought together this fantastic ability to 
to tell a story and really weave a lot of material together in a way that felt organic and alive and very kind of relaxed and present in the room, while also having such deep technical knowledge of this topic and so much personal experience working with people and unraveling her own story, which is where we started with her personal history growing up in the Dominican Republic and then immigrating to New Jersey when she was, I think, five years old. She talked a bit about some of the patterns in her own family, having an older sister that she had some conflict with, what was handed down through her mother, her own tendency to be quiet and kind of very self-effacing and very oriented toward supporting the other members of the family, in part because, sure, there were aspects of that that were her own soft, supportive nature, and there were aspects of that that made sense in the environment that she was in and were kind of conditioned into her by all of the things that were going on around her. And later in the conversation, she talked about the kind of uh, tree of trauma that we're all carrying around, how there are the branches and the roots and the soil that the tree grows in. There are relationships with other people. There are the behavioral patterns that we have. There's what happened to the people further up the family tree than us, what happened to our parents and our grandparents and our ancestors going on from there, and how those things very practically impact us, how they really are lived by us in some way, and how therefore we have to go through a deliberate process of changing those patterns if we want to break those cycles. And throughout the conversation, Mariel did a wonderful job moving back and forth between the technical part of this whole thing and the more lived, practical, experiential part of it. And I think that that probably, I'm kind of putting words in her mouth here, but I'm guessing that reflects the work that she does practically with clients, how there's this uh, pendulation, to use the word from Peter Levine, back and forth from the more kind of cognitive aspects of our experience or the more process-driven aspects of our experience to the underbelly of it. And this is found in her phasic model, where we start by phase one, developing uh, tools and practices that help ground us and soothe us and stabilize us. So to put it a certain kind of way, we can face annihilation. We can risk the dreaded experience. We can have an interaction with somebody else where we're not sure how it's going to go or where it's going to land. Because a lot of that cycle-breaking process comes down to being willing to step out of a heavily established pattern inside of your family of origin. And that is a big risk. That comes with a lot of lot of danger, a lot of stress, a lot of threat. Because our family systems are these incredibly powerful structures. They've been around for a long time. The people in them have known us for a long time, and they are very resistant to change often. And this means that it's very important for us to have resourcing tools that allow us to do this kind of work and to go into the sort of dark underbelly of our experience. And that's phase two, where we're going through more of the unearthing process. She talked about building a genogram or doing a, uh, a very fleshed out version of the adverse childhood experiences process that uh, people will go through just kind of a form normally in a therapist's waiting room where they're filling out this adverse childhood experience form that has a lot of really stressful stuff on it that can understandably activate somebody. And she talked about going through that in a much more gentle process with her clients, where she really built out this list of experiences that could very understandably impact the way that somebody is or acts in the world. And that then gets us to the third phase, phase three, which is about how do we integrate this understanding 
into the way that we actually are with other people. And she used this really wonderful example of a parent with their child and giving the parent a lollipop or not. You know, the parents at the end of a long day, the kid asks for a lollipop, how do you respond? Are you in the old model that's maybe been handed down in some kind of way where you respond abruptly or angrily because there's a story in your family that like we're shouty people, we're just like, that's what we do? Or do you have a moment where you have a little bit of space because you're able to identify the pattern, you've developed some insight around it, and in that moment, in those one or two seconds that you've bought through all of the work that you've done, which has just led to those one or two seconds, you know, in addition to probably a lot of other really wonderful benefits from you, I don't want to underplay it here, but I love how small this is. It's just a few seconds, but in those few seconds, you can do so much. You can make a different choice that maybe sets a different pattern going forward from here on. Because that's life, right? Life is what happens to us while we're waiting for something else to happen. Life is what happens to us while we're waiting for the white light moment where the seas part and the clouds alight in the sky, right? That's life. Those little, little tiny moments that don't really feel like a lot, you know, while you're having them, that little interaction with your kid doesn't really feel like a lot maybe in the moment. But you have 10 of those moments, 100 of those moments, 1,000 of those moments through time, and all of a sudden you look back and you are in such a radically different place than where you started. I also want to take a moment here at the end to talk about something that came up for just a minute during our conversation toward the end of it. Now, Dr. Bouquet has been phenomenally trained in the kind of classic Western psychological model. You know, she went to medical school at Columbia University. And she uses a lot of tools from that tradition, and she talks about a lot of them in the book. But she also integrates a lot of holistic practices, particularly in the book, that haven't necessarily had a ton of formal research done on them for a variety of different reasons. We don't normally share a lot of practices like that on the podcast, because as you know, if you've been listening for a while, I'm a pretty scientific, materialisty sort of guy, so it's just not usually my frame. So I wanted to share kind of how I think about this and how my thinking on this has changed over time. I used to be somebody where if there wasn't like a large-scale study supporting a practice, I just wasn't going to talk about it on the podcast. But these days I've moved to a focus on what I think actually matters. Simple question, does this help people feel better? And then really, really important question, does it have a lot of downsides? Does it have a lot of costs? If it's low downside and low cost and it makes somebody feel better, what the heck are we talking about here? Like, why not do it? The arc of history is really long, and the Western psychological tradition is only about 150 years old here. The roots of the word psychology itself literally translate to the study of the soul. And psychology has long been looked down on by the hard sciences as being like a little, little unscientific, a little up in their feelings, a little woo, to lack a better word. Practices like meditation, which we talk about all the time on the podcast, and which is like these days arguably the single most commonly recommended mental health practice out there, were viewed as totally fringe 50 years ago, like lacking a research basis, not supported inside of our classic Western model, not a serious practice. And these days, there's an incredibly robust body of research that supports meditation as a helpful intervention for everything from uh, dealing with stress and stress reduction, to chronic pain issues, to managing anxiety, to helping people just feel like they're getting a little bit more out of life. 
and I'm kind of saying this like a little bit to myself here in all of this because I am that scientific person and I will, you know, continue to be that way. That'll continue to be 99% of what we talk about here on the show. But I just think that there's a place for a little bit more intellectual humility and a little bit more openness to possibility about what could actually really help people. So again, my guest today was Dr. Mariel Bouquet. She's the author of Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. You can find her online at drmarielbouquet.com. You can also find her on Instagram under the same name. She has a huge following on Instagram, like a quarter million followers or something like that. She's doing great work over there if you're uh, if you're into the social media side of things. And again, I just love this conversation. I thought that was totally fantastic. I really appreciate her work. And I was glad that she was able to take the time to talk to me about it today. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way to do that is by taking a moment to subscribe to it now. Maybe leave a rating and a positive review on the uh, podcast platform of your choice. If you're watching us on YouTube, you could leave a comment down below, maybe ask a question, share something that you learned from the episode. Is there a future topic you would like us to explore related to this episode? That would all be really helpful for me to know. And the best way you can support the show is just by telling a friend about it. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find me on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.